today. Anyone arrived since last night? Okay. Welcome. Welcome. I mean, I don't know why I'm welcoming you, but you know, <laughs> thanks for welcoming me. Um, it's great to be with you. Uh, it's wonderful. We just sung through so much of the content of Philippians. Uh, whoever's choosing the songs there, great job. Um, it's great to be discipling our hearts through song as well as through uh, listening to the word preached. Uh, so thank you for getting me into it. Uh, let's remember our sentence before we carry on. Rejoice to the end in the selfless, life-shaping love of Christ. That's Philippians in a sentence for you. Rejoice to the end in the selfless, life-shaping love of Christ. And the, uh, the section we're going to look at today um, is one of those really quotable sections I was talking about yesterday. Um, one of those pithy little statements that says so much uh, that some, some, if we've been around the church a long time, we, we might start to think it's just obvious and makes sense. But it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and we're going to get into that uh, as we go through today. It does make sense eventually, but only through Christ. Um, it's an exploration of the idea that for Paul, for us, in the Spirit of God, as we see Christ and life ever more clearly, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's read that passage. Um, Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through to 30. Starting halfway through verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, his imprisonment and people preaching uh, to try and get him in trouble, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. But my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Lord, you've not left us as orphans, but you sent us a helper the Holy Spirit, to be with us. You've given us your word, and you feed and nourish us through it. We ask that you would feed us this morning together as your body, whom you have chosen, whom you have covenanted to yourself. Well, please teach us what it is to, to live, to live with these truths in, in view, to see Christ for who he is, to see you for who you are, revealed. We praise you for these things and ask that you go to work on our hearts this morning. Amen. 
Now, if you had met me at nine years old, you would have met a little boy obsessed with Arsenal Football Club. That's soccer. A little bit different. If you'd come to my bedroom, you would have seen that I gloried in those guys. I had posters of Patrick Vieira, Ray Parler, Emmanuel Petit, Thierry Henry, Jens Lehmann. I could name them all. They mean nothing to you. <laughs> but they, they were my glory. Now my nine-year-old nephew glories in Liverpool. It's hard. It's painful. <laughs> you know, I, I get it. I get it. They're better these days. He lives up north. Um, it's okay. It's okay. The pain is okay because I moved on to rugby, so I don't even care anymore. <laughs> so I got into middle school and found out that rugby was going to be a bigger part of life than, than soccer. And so um, I fell in love with rugby. I wasn't very good at it, but I fell in love. And I can show you how much I fell in love by telling you that for my 21st birthday and for my bachelor party, I went to Twickenham, which is the English National Rugby Stadium, the home of rugby. Wonderful place, enormous stadium, I mean, kind of average by you know, American college standards. But um, for us, it's huge. And um, I don't know that there is really an equivalent in America. It's definitely not FedEx Field, because this place has heart um, and, and a team that you know, people love. Um, <laughs> couldn't help it. Maybe it's the Fenway Park of rugby. And like the Bostonians, we don't pronounce our R's, so yeah, similar, it's getting there. Um, but um, when I went there, it was, it was wonderful, especially to begin with. When you walk in, I, some of you love some stadiums, I don't know what they are. Um, you'll walk in and it's incredible as you walk in. And yet, by the end of each of those days, there was a sense of disappointment. There's a sense that this glorious thing that I had looked forward to for so long, and it seemed so amazing at the outset, was just going to happen again next year. And it was really just a bunch of guys live around my age, sadly, doing things better than I can do, but you know, not that amazing. And uh, we're always looking for things to glory in. And we, we chase after them, and, and yet again and again they fade and slip away. Even good things that we seek to glory in, we look to them to be the glory we cherish. These things, we, we, we're looking for something to boast in. Something that is truly worthy, that, is, that we can look to and say, I can wonder at that, I can marvel at that. And we're pursuing it in all sorts of different ways. It, we might say, traditionally, people have sought it in battle. All the great early literature is about that, isn't it? Glory in battle. Um, and it carries on to this day. We might seek it uh, in nature. They're going out to, to landscapes that are so beautiful, they take our breath away. And yet, within a month, it's ordinary. Every now and then the glory returns, but you realize that it's, it's normal. Maybe you seek it in um, things that matter to you. Maybe that's promotion. Maybe it's um, upgrading some tech. Maybe it's traveling. Whatever it is, by whatever measure matters to us, we carry on searching for things to glory in, things that are worthy, that are genuinely glorious. And the pursuit of those things can, can shake, shape our lives. And the irony, according to the Bible, is, is that we were created glorious. That very thing that we're chasing is there because it was in us from creation. Created in the image of God, genuinely beautiful, genuinely worthy of praise. And in genuine relationship with the object of that glory, the true glory, God himself, face to face in the garden. No obstruction, no fading this is how we're created. It's deep in us. To find things that are worthy of glory and to glory in them. 
And so we find ourselves scrolling through profiles, through reels, through seasons of shows, fixating on political campaigns, going through decades with sports teams. All these things searching for that glory. That sense that there is something we were made for. Something to give ourselves to, to be joined to. Something genuinely worthy. And there's this urgency that kind of rumbles under our daily ordinaries of seeking, waiting for that to finally be there. Time is ticking. It's a hard answer. But Philippians gives us a better answer to that question of glory. A much better answer. Right at the heart of this passage is that enigmatic formula to live is Christ, to die is gain. And it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, grammatically. And otherwise. But we're going to spend the rest of this time resting with the passage around us that explains it, that gives meaning to what this is. That shows us that reality of glory. Even in our fallen state. Even in our brokenness. So like Paul, we're going to focus in this passage, as he does, mainly on what to live is Christ means. But to understand that, we've got to go to the second half of the sentence and think about what it means that to die is gain. Read with me verses 21 to 23 again. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And the first thing we've got to acknowledge is that this, this is a hard thing to read and sympathize with. I was running out this morning, I uh, took a little jog down to the river, and um, on my way back, ran through a cemetery, uh, one of those Civil War cemeteries. And if running through a cemetery will remind you of anything, it's that death is real, death is constant, we can't, we can't run away from it. Death is the great heartbreak of life. It is the, the taking of the image of God and breaking it. That image of God that we see in one another, that we cherish and love, that gives us genuine dignity, beauty, even in our brokenness. Death is terrible. We're not pretending otherwise. It brings anything. It brings loss and not gain. And yet, at the same time, it's natural and right for anyone who knows Christ to want to go and be with him. Um, the Apostle Paul had suffered so much by this point in his life. It kind of makes more sense when we think about what he's been through. Beatings and exile and shipwrecks and betrayals and all those things. It makes sense that he might say to depart, that's better. But it's still difficult to say that death is gain. Unless we know what's beyond it. I remember sitting around with a friend back in 2004 when we were considering Christ. And they say, okay, well if this is true, can't we just go and be with Christ? Why all this life in between? If eternal life, if the resurrection life is so much better, why walk through all of this? And that's natural and right. If we understand what the Bible says about who Christ is and where history is going. That's the obvious conclusion. We want to depart and go and be with him. Can't we just skip the middle and get to the good part? If there's a new creation without pain, without tears, without suffering, where all things will be restored to the glory they were created for. Most powerfully, if there's a place where we can be face to face in intimate relationship with Christ, with God himself, in perfect restored relationship with one another, 
Wouldn't we want to go be there? As we come to understand who Christ is, the idea that to die is gain starts to make sense. Why are we still here? We need to hold tight to this and not apologize for it. That the most wonderful thing that can happen to any believer, yes, it is painful, but the most wonderful thing that can happen to any believer is to go and be with Christ. And for those who, who don't know Christ, that is something we need to hold out and say, hey, this is the sweetest part of the deal. There is great blessing now, but the very best thing is that we get to go and be with Christ eternally. There's no embarrassment there. That is wonderful. It's not just a, a euphemism to help us cope with the agony of mortality. It's more real and more true than any earthbound imagination can, can fathom. That life in Christ eternally. To die is gain. That hope of being with Christ gives us, gives us cause to glory. glory. That death is a doorway through which we get to that glory, that full enjoyment of it. I say that knowing that death is hideous. And yet, this is true. To die is gain. We've got to understand that to understand what he goes on to say about life. Let's come now to, to what we'll spend most of our time on. The idea that to live is Christ. And I'm going to suggest from this passage that to live is Christ really means that to live is to give others cause to glory in Christ. This all-surpassing glory after death isn't actually his main point. It's almost a peripheral point. It's something he passes through in explaining to us the meaning of life. Uh, we've seen that there is glory. There is this grand idea of what is to come. Um, but the first half of the equation is more immediate and perhaps more radical even than that. We can kind of assent to that idea of, of glory. And some people will criticize us for saying it's pie in the sky when we die. And great, but what about life now? Paul doesn't just leave us saying, yeah, you'll get there. He is concerned with this life. And so he disobeys basic grammar, I think, to wake us up. I love it. I used to be an English teacher. And um, you've got to look at that sentence and say, that does not make sense. If you wrote that in an essay for me, I would send that back with red pen. <laughs> to live is Christ, to die is gain. I, I, what does it mean? It, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, we're forced to actually listen to his explanation to figure it out. Because um, we might be tempted to think it's, it's a kind of just a, a platitude to, to live as Christ. But what does that mean? Does that mean uh, look around with kind of Christ goggles and see everything through Christ? Maybe. I mean, that's a good thing to do. See the whole world through the lens of Christ. But I think it's more specific than that. Uh, before we go into it, though, I want you to think how you would finish that sentence. To live is... Let me give you some suggestions before we ask some questions. Um, to live is to fulfill your potential. To live is to love well. To live is to make a difference. To live is pleasure. To live is to see justice done. To live is to, to change the world, to break generational patterns, to do better. For some people to answer that question might be very difficult. To live is what? To live is to get through today. To live is to get to a point where I have some self-respect? It can be a hard question to answer. It's a, it's a question that's haunted many 
great thinkers. Oscar Wilde from my side of the pond said that to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people just exist. And then from this side of the Atlantic, Thoreau, Walden, the great mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. It's an urgent question. What does it mean to live? I think we can ask a few questions to help us dig into where we are answering that question subconsciously. Let me ask you five. Um, what do you do with your imagination? This is going to help you figure out what to live means for you. Um, what things do you dwell on? What do you daydream about? Where does your mind go when there's nothing else to think about? What do you do with your time? Time tells us a lot about our priorities, doesn't it? What are the things that are important? What would you never miss on your calendar? I might tell you a little bit about what life means to you. What would you cancel everything else for? What do you do with your imagination, your time? What do you spend your money on? When Jesus tells us where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And the wallet is a great diagnostic tool. Where does the money go? Let me ask you a little bit differently. What would you go or what have you gone into debt for? There are things in life we think, that's crazy to take that debt out. And yet, for other things, we take out far more debt. To live is... How do you define success in life? What do you need to have? What are the ways in which you need to be seen? One of the things you'll do anything to get, even sin to get, because it's life. As you think through those questions, there may be things coming to mind. What, finally, do you fear losing? What if lost would mean no more life? And I ask those questions not lightly, but solemnly, because the answers to those questions are not little things. As I ask those questions, I think of my daughter. Things that genuinely matter. How would you answer that question? To live is. I mentioned how important this is because if there's going to be an answer that pushes out those things, it needs to be truly worthy. If there's an answer that is more important than those things we see in our hearts, it needs to be genuinely glorious. It cannot be a counterfeit if we're going to live like that. The stakes are high. It means that Christ, Christ must be so beautiful that he fills our hearts. He must be so strong that his arms can carry us, so trustworthy that we can rest in him and feel secure. He must be so worthy that at the end of a life spent in his service, suffering, yes, sacrificing, yes, but knowing him, we can, we can say, I have lived. I have truly lived. That is who Christ must be for us to say that to live is Christ. And that's a question each one of us will have to ask. Do I believe that Christ is these things? Jesus is supremely valuable to Paul. He's the, the one thing that Paul cannot live without that gives his life meaning. 
But it's not just kind of up there as an abstract reality. Paul is deeply rooted in the present, in the everyday. He's talking real flesh and blood and life and relationships. And he, he goes on fleshing that out through the passage um, for him and for us. So we're going to think about what it means to live as Christ, first for him and then for us. So let's think about what it meant for him to live his Christ. Verse 20, um, he says... It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. There's a really fun Greek word in there. Um, it's, uh, it just sounds fun. Mega lunthesatai. Mega lunthesatai. That's the word translated honour. Christ may be honoured in my body. Made mega. Um, the Welsh say mega to mean great. So it's more funnier for me than you. Um, <laughs> But it's this idea that the life is going to be Christ being honoured in his body, made much of in the flesh and blood reality of life. Um, Paul, let's remember, again, he's been stoned, beaten, imprisoned, sent out, shipwrecked, travelled the ancient world on foot for decades. He's had friends leave him, people call him evil, all these different things have happened to him. His body is a mess for the sake of the honour of Christ. He's not playing, even through deep pain. And if you're able to speak of how Christ has been glorious through deep sacrifice and suffering, that message is powerful. I'm sure you've seen that in the lives of people who have lived this kind of life, who've turned around and said, yes, and Christ is wonderful. It has power. Christ is honoured in our bodies as those bodies hurt. And we say, yes, and Christ is wonderful. There's more than that, though. It's not just passive. Verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that shall mean fruitful labor for me. And that's getting a little bit more specific. To live as Christ means fruitful labor. More concrete meaning. Let's look at verse 24. He says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Fruitful labor on their account. We're getting closer to understanding what Paul means about to live is Christ. When he talks to the Philippians. This labor is necessary for their sake. To live, in verses 24 to 26, is to live this life for the progress and joy in the faith of others. Verse 25, convinced this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Uh, I do a lot of work with, with middle schoolers. Um, and one thing that I love to try and communicate to them is this fact. What I want from them is not perfection. I don't mind if they can't answer every question on the catechism, or even one. I don't mind these things. What I want is for them to make progress and joy in the faith. That they would know Christ a little better and understand a little more how glorious he is. How he really is the fulfillment of those things that we long for. Progress and joy in the faith. Um, that way we give them, like Christ, ample cause to glory in Christ, as Paul does. Um, I can't help but pause on the word ample. It's a weird word, isn't it? I don't know, is it a word you use much? Ample? My, uh, my grandfather, great, I mean, terrible dude, great dude. All sorts of things. Uh, Blue-collar, Italian immigrant. Um, not a nice guy, sadly. 
Uh, but you know, you love him. Uh, anyway, he, when he was old, he would he lived part time with us and part time with my cousins, um, and uh, <laughs> he would, he would demand a Guinness on a Sunday, uh, and he'd demand cake when he wanted it, this kind of thing. And you'd bring him a bit. He'd, he'd say, "Oh, just a toothful, just a toothful, uh, a toothful." Uh, it makes no sense. Just a corner. Just a corner. Uh, that's all he wanted, just a corner. And he'd bring him something, and it would be obviously more than a two-full or a corner. And if it was enough, he would say, if it wasn't enough on the drink, oh, tide's a bit out, isn't it? Tide's a bit out. Um, but if it was enough, you'd get the great word, ample. Oh, that's ample. Ample. Um, I loved it. Just, just right. Enough. Plenty. Um, and at the very end of his life, when uh, his body and mind were failing, my mother, whom he had not treated well, kept bringing him ample, kept taking him to church. And he was in the car on the way. He would be cussing away all the way. But we'd get there, he'd sing, and he'd be there. And towards the end of his life, there were maybe a, little, a few smiles, maybe that peace that we long for, for those family members who don't know Christ. I just include that to encourage us as we persevere in the long haul. The progress and joy in the faith, even of those who seem a long way off. Anyway, ample. Um, ample cause to glory. That's what we can offer one another as we persevere in Christ. Um, and let me uh, just remind us of something we saw yesterday. This letter is not First Timothy. Congratulations, Austin. Really observant. Uh, it's Philippians. Um, why do I say that? It's because of that thing we noticed yesterday, that this is not addressed to the pastor. This is addressed to all the saints. Remember, all, 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 all through chapter 1. Really driving in the point that he's writing to every single one of us. Um, what does that mean? Uh, his reasoning in these verses, the commands he gives, are not just an instruction to pastors. That command to, to labor for the progress and joy in the faith of one another is something he gives to all of us. Not to outsource, but to take on, to do in joy. Um, it is a joyful thing, isn't it, when you see someone grow in that way. Friends of mine, we became came to faith at similar times when we were younger and seeing the Lord just do business with them over years, it's a joy kids who I, I met when they were teenagers who are now adults proclaiming Christ, it is joyful and let's not forget some will fall away and that will break your heart but we labour, we pray on that progress and joy in the faith, to live is Christ, it means however many of us seeing our lives as Paul does he later says, to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of your faith. We don't go there yet, because there's plenty to do now. So for us, we thought about Paul giving ample cause to glory in Christ, the Philippians. But we're not Paul. Again, I mean, very insightful, Austin. Not Paul. Um, names are different. Not such a good cowboy name. Um, it's a great cowboy. Isn't it? Yeah. Thank you. I was going to tell my mother that. Um, and I'm glad for that reason that we read 27 to 30 as well, because we don't want to leave this up in the realm of this is what the apostle does, or even this is what the apostle commands us, but he actually fleshes it out again, tells us more details. All believers are commissioned to this work, and we're granted very specific privileges. Um, we don't have time to dive deep into 27 to 30, um, but let's just look at the verbs in those verses. Told you he's an English teacher. Um, the verbs we get there, stand firm. 
middle of verse 27, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Strive side by side. Not frightened by your opponents. Being granted to you. Gifted to you. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. As we look at those verbs, you notice he's not calling you to an easy life. You know that if you've walked with him for a while. He's calling you to something much richer. A much richer life. Where through difficulty, through suffering, you see him at work. You see him redeem things and use things that seem beyond redemption. For me to live is Christ. As we minister to one another, teaching, discipling, getting into the trenches for the sake of unity, we get to say this. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel, we find in one another that ample cause to glory that Paul gives the Philippians. And let's remember, why would, he, why would he do this? Why would we do this? It has to come down to that truth we were talking about. Christ must be worth this. He must be all those things we said before, so beautiful, so strong, so kind, so true, that our lives are best used helping others see those things. We're going to see in the next chapter that he's taught us the way to glory is upside down. That Christ gave up everything, far more than we can imagine, to do this work for us, and it is done. What we get to do is nothing compared to that, but it is still wonderful. This is Christ who lived and died for us and broke open the other side of death for us. For Christ, it's been said that to live is you and to die is you. And so we get to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. first half of the answer the sermon sounds a little easier than the second doesn't it to go and be with Christ the second half it's more of a challenge a lot of work to do he doesn't deny that Paul says of course it's better for me by far to go and be with Christ and really as we finish one of the great surprises in this passage I think is that he can even compare the reality of living in this life in the same sentence as going to be with Christ you can see there, say that there is such glory, such purpose in this life that it can be put in the same sentence as eternity with Christ. Working for each other's progress and joy in the faith is so meaningful that it's comparable to that glory. As we search for glory, we can find it if the gospel of Christ is real. We're made for glory. We talked about it at the beginning. We search it out. We're made to glory in things beyond ourselves. To see not only great things in creation, but the creator himself. And to share that with others. To help them see how great he is. He loves you. He died to give you eternal life that's already begun. He's our cause to glory and he gives us worthy glorious work to do right now work that will not finish with death but flourish into eternity to live is Christ and to die is gain let's pray
Father in heaven, we praise you that you sent Christ, that we might know something of the depth of beauty and glory and purpose and worth that is found only in yourself. Help us, Lord, to answer that question. What is it to live? Help us to hear the answers that we hold close to our hearts and to bring them to you. To trust you with the, the things those teach us about our hearts. Free us, we pray. Free us to, to love one another. To give one another that ample cause for glory. To see one another grow in progress and joy in the faith. Lord, even as we pray, we know that none of those things can happen other than by the power of your Spirit. We could use our whole lives attempting to do that, but unless you work this miracle among us, it will not happen. So we pray that as you saved us, so you'd use us. Thank you for giving our life this, this power, this glory, this purpose. Even in our weakness, we praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.